This winter, join the Washington Post in its fight against hunger, homelessness, and poverty with a contribution to Post Helping Hand. To learn more and donate, visit posthelpinghand.com. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle, the cloud-based business management software that gives you the visibility and control you need to grow. NetSuite is offering their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash WAPO. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, December 17th. Today, vets respond to the Afghanistan papers, an Alaskan town facing an existential crisis, and a controversial new law in India. Last week, The Post published a collection of secret documents and audio recordings of government officials talking candidly about the failures of the war in Afghanistan and how those realities were hidden from the public. Generals and ambassadors and aid workers and troops who said this war was a mess and our strategy failed and we didn't know what we were doing. They literally used those words. That's Craig Whitlock, the reporter that broke the story and fought for years to make these secret documents public. While on one hand, it makes sense because people have known the war hasn't been going well, which is why we've been there for 18 years, to hear or read these people who are in charge of the war admitting how the war was screwed up and that what the American people were being told about the wars wasn't true. It's really kind of mind-boggling. If you haven't yet listened to that story from last week, I recommend that you go back to hear those recordings. It's really remarkable. And when The Post published this investigation, we asked for feedback from some of the people that have been impacted the most, veterans who served in Afghanistan. And so far, we've collected over 150 responses. So we're going to play some of them. I was like, finally, finally, there's this proof that that it's unwinnable, that every report that or most of the reports that are being written was a lie for all of us that went over there and worked so hard and put our families through so much and there was never a strategy we were just going through motions you know chasing ghosts through mountains me and my friends none of us were surprised dude. <laughs> like everything that's what i'm saying like i when i came back and i realized it was like this is not like a war war this is like this is just like borderline occupation this is not new this is not news I mean, it's news that it was known at that level among multiple administrations, but it's not new to anyone that's been paying attention for the last decade. It was the day after I got home. I was visiting friends, and I walked into this Whole Foods, and I was like, I hate you all. Just, you know, those poor people. I hate you all because none of you even remembers that there's a war happening. It's so far removed, and why do you guys get to not care about it? When it's your job, it's your responsibility as citizens to care. And I just can't help but feel like, you know, we paid the price for a decision maker in Washington, D.C.'s mistakes. And it wasn't just us paying the price. It was also the Afghani people themselves. After, you know, three years there and and you don't see any progress from your perspective, you start to question, what the hell are we doing? There's a lot of feeling like you're, you're a Sisyphus, like you're just pushing the rock up the hill and you go home for six months. And you come back and the rock's at the bottom of the hill and you're like, well, now I'm going to start pushing it again. You know, why? 
when we were there, we had the local elders. They came to us requesting to build a small dam to help prevent the spring floods or at least limit their damage. We put our plans together, sent them up to our headquarters, and when they came back, the small dam had morphed into a massive hydroelectric dam. And the residents of the valley we were in, they were all subsistence farmers that had small herds of goats and sheep, and we didn't know what they were going to do with a giant hydroelectric dam. It's not something that they wanted or it's practical. Like you couldn't do anything with that. And it was just the giant disconnect from what we were seeing, you know, living with these farmers in the valley and what they thought they could do at either the Pentagon or um, Bagram was a huge disconnect. It was night and day. The first time I was, I was basically traveling around interviewing Afghan police. My sense of this has always been that when it came to the police in particular, in the quest to build up those forces as quickly as possible, particularly in 2010 when we really started to build police in quantity, there was this feeling of, you know, they're being recruited individually. The screening didn't appear to be very good for who got in. So you had a lot of people coming into the force who were on drugs, a lot of people coming into the force who were being brought in sort of de facto en masse because they were the militia forces of powerful people who were in the police already. So, you know, I would go to places where everyone I would talk to was a cousin of the head of whatever that police station was. And I would say, can you, can someone bring me someone who's not a cousin of the commander? And, and there just wasn't anyone there who wasn't a family member. Um, and that's how you got a lot of the cronyism at local levels. I still to this day don't question why we went there, but it is clear that we transitioned from eliminate Afghanistan as a harbor for transnational terrorist organization to little girls should go to school. And that's important. And I like that idea. But as a national security professional, that's beyond the strategic abilities of the army, certainly. Our mission was pretty much to secure the elections. The area we were in, we were in RC South. I first noticed it on election day when, uh, in 2009 when Karzai got reelected, when I saw the National Army stuffing ballots. I said something to my squad leader. I was like, hey, like, they're stuffing ballots. He was like, what do you mean they're stuffing ballots? I said, no one has come here to vote today, but they're shoving papers into this box that look like voting ballots. I said, aren't we here to make sure that this election goes smoothly? It doesn't look like it's going smoothly. So I started, you know, getting a little... You know, the, the Terp was there. He was telling what I was saying. They got, you know, they, they didn't really appreciate what I was saying to them. So my squad leader put me by myself and said, just monitor the radio. That's what you're supposed to do. Like, what were we going to do? Tell them to stop doing that. It's their country. It's their rules. And after that, I was just like, wow, this, this whole mission is, is bogus. After that, I was just like, I don't know what we're doing here. This, this is bogus. It's just, I didn't know what we were doing. Why were we there if they weren't doing things properly anyway? All our leaders, you saw them on television giving speeches and on leadership and publishing their self-help books or their leadership books upon retirement. They had abandoned us, many of us, before we even got there. The war to them, it was a box to check. It was something to do in their career. But for us, it wasn't fake, even though our time there ended up being worthless.
The voices you heard were Army Infantryman Jonathan Rosario, Army Combat Medic Shane Reynolds, Army Automated Logistics Specialist June Celeste Spence, Army Intelligence Officer Greg Frostrom, Civilian Researcher Becky Zimmerman, and Marine Corps Field Radio Operator Caleb A. Hader. There are many more reflections that The Post received from veterans of the war in Afghanistan. To read those and to read more about the Afghanistan papers, go to postreports.com. I went to a town called Nuiqsut, which is on Alaska's North Slope. It's a tiny place with 480 people living there. And it's called Nuiqsut. This is a hard one. It is Nuiqsut. It's, uh, I, I actually, you know, have been trying very hard to pronounce it correctly. The, in the, uh, the official English pronunciation that, they, that the state of Alaska has is Nuiqsut. But I checked with a University of Alaska at Fairbanks professor, a linguist, and to the best of my ability, running this past many people, it's best to say Nuiqsut. 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 That sounded like no exit. I feel like that. But, but you almost had it. That's National Affairs correspondent Juliet Alprin. She went to the Alaska native village of Nuiqsut, which is in the northernmost part of the state. Reporters here at The Post have been looking at the places around the world that have already warmed so much that scientists say irreversible harm is setting in. Nuiqsut is one of those places. Since the late 1800s, the average annual temperature there has warmed almost 4 degrees Celsius, or 7 degrees Fahrenheit. That's quadruple the world average, and the warming is happening faster. Juliet says that it's part of a broader transformation in Alaska that she's learned about from people like Martha Ita. Martha Ita is the tribal administrator for the native village of Nuiqsut. I also serve as the vice mayor for the city of Nuiqsut. Which is a small village of roughly 480 people on Alaska's North Slope. Ita's ancestors had roamed this landscape on Alaska's North Slope for centuries and had generally followed animals, including caribou and others, to hunt and survive as subsistence hunters. But in the 1940s, the U.S. government had a policy where they they were encouraging Alaska natives to move to major cities so that children could get standard educations. And as a result, you really saw people abandon some of their traditional lands and move to places like Barrow, which is now called Ukiagbek. So folks moved there and everything changed in 1971. I appreciate this opportunity to extend my greetings and best wishes to the Convention of the Alaska Federation of Natives. That's when Richard Nixon signed into law the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. This is a milestone in Alaska's history and in a way our government deals with Native and Indian peoples. It shows that institutions of government are responsive. As we develop this bill... And what that did 
is it gave Alaska Natives nearly a billion dollars and allowed them to lay claim to 44 million acres in the state in exchange for relinquishing their claims on anywhere else. The rest became either state property or federal property. And as a result, you had a caravan of 27 families that traveled to Nooksit, established tents by the river, and spent the next year and a half resettling their town. And so now Martha is tribal administrator of that town. What are the issues that she's dealing with as tribal administrator? She deals with a number of issues, but first and foremost, she is trying to determine how the village can prosper and at the same time sustain traditions like subsistence hunting. Right now it's just preserving our land for subsistence use to survive and to carry on our tradition to our children and our children's children. Roughly half the diet of the people who live in this community comes from hunting wild game. On one hand, they want to continue with this, but on the other hand, there is significant oil development near Nuxet, which helps sustain the community economically, but could potentially imperil some of the activities. If their tradition is to hunt caribou, why would that change in the future? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One is that because there's actually really strong prospects for oil in this part of Alaska, there are an increasing network of pipelines, drill rigs, very high gravel roads that might alter the caribou's migration patterns. Where we once used to scout here at Nagalaya is no longer used because of these pipelines that are in view of the scouting place. Uh, That's Raymond Ibaluk, Martha's cousin. He says that now he sees way fewer caribou around the oil fields near the village. Uh, but, that, but because of these pipelines, we believe that they're being deferred from their traditional migration routes because of either traffic or pipeline facilities that are either too low for them to cross. And when you add to that, you have to factor in climate change. And that is having a tremendous impact on a number of the species that live in this region. We're talking about certainly the fastest warming place in the United States. And the warming has accelerated in recent decades. I mean, what's incredible is that since 1970, which is roughly the time when Nooksit was resettled, we're talking about an increase of more than 0.7 degrees Celsius. So it's really increasing over time. And how do they see the effects of climate change play out in their day-to-day life? You can see it in a number of ways. One of the most visible ways is in the cemetery. The thawing of the permafrost is causing our land to fall and drop. The town has one graveyard. And when you go there, the land is sinking. And that's because the ice that's in the permafrost, which is essentially frozen earth, is melting. Our land is dropping. So at our cemetery... Um, We're always having to fill our loved one's grave because as they're sitting there, it gets soft and it drops, so we fill it in. And as a result, it is creating these, these pools, these pathways of water that run through the graves. And in fact, the crosses are tilted one way or another as a result. You also just see it in terms of their houses, which are in relatively good condition for a remote Alaskan village, have 
the ground sinking in some cases beneath their base. And so the steps become slanted. They also see it in terms of, you know, a change in the weather at times, a change in what they're seeing for wildlife migration. So it is an ever-present part of their reality at this point. What's interesting about New Ixit is that as the town is experiencing the effects of climate change, it's also heavily supported by an industry that contributes to climate change, oil production. Oil companies first moved in when New Ixit was resettled. Now, ConocoPhillips has the largest stake. One of the really unusual things that happened when they resettled is that they created a village corporation where anyone who was there at the time got 100 shares in this corporation. Anyone who was there at the time when they started drilling? No. Anyone who was there in 1973 when they originally resettled it. And so, for example... Martha Ita was born a few years after that, as were all her siblings. And so they don't have shares in the corporation. And to put this in perspective, the dividends for a full shareholder in the Cookbook Corporation last year were $31,000. Now, there are lots of other ways. Oil development does have benefits for everyone, even if you're not a shareholder. ConocoPhillips put up the basketball cart. It helped underwrite the community center for teens. It repaired the roof on on the entire community center, and it helps subsidize the whale hunt that they do in the fall and the spring. It offers internships as well as, you know, some level of, of employment for the community. And so the oil development is inextricably tied and part of the fabric of this community. So for Martha, the tribal administrator, how is she navigating this? Well, it's interesting. She has decided to wage a fight to stop ConocoPhillips from expanding its oil production and specifically from hunting for oil this winter. She convinced the tribal leaders to join in a lawsuit that a few environmental groups are waging against the federal government arguing that essentially they made a mistake in allowing ConocoPhillips the right to look for oil this winter without fully assessing the environmental impacts of that decision. The most important are the concerns of our community are fully addressed because that leads to funding for our community and that shows how impacted we are because there's no real data showing that how impacted we are. And how has that fight gone down in her community? Like, do, do does everybody support her in this? No, there are very sharp divisions on this question because oil royalties are such a huge portion of what people earn. And as a result, the idea of trying to put a halt to that, especially at a moment where there's even greater potential on the North Slope, is something that in many ways has divided family and friends. Well, our way of life. Got it. You guys are opposing to what we've been doing. Mm-hmm. One of the folks who I happened to meet while I was up there is Edward Nagapiak, the brother of Martha Ita's father. You folks are going to feel that pain that we're going to feel before. You folks are going to go through all that hardship, just like we did starting from Tent City. And we all told them, set your tents down there and see what it's like without fossil fuel. 
Canada Driftwood Plumber. How you water by five gallon buckets. I also think that it's fascinating that the how people in the community feel about this, the way that you've described it, that it kind of falls along lines of age, that for people who are older who see even more of the financial benefits of this drilling, that they see what has been gained from this industry, they're not like climate change deniers. They're just people who say that the short-term realities and the short-term challenges are more important or more pressing than the long-term realities. Absolutely. One of the interesting interviews I conducted for the story was I spent time with Joe Balash, who had been the top interior official working on, uh, on, on these issues. He absolutely agreed that climate change is, is real and it's happening and that his home state is warming faster than anywhere else in the U.S. But his point was, that doesn't mean that we stop oil development and that we, in his words, impoverish, you know, the people who live here. Alaska is not a snow globe, right? Some people want to just shake it up and put it up on their shelf and, ooh, that's a pretty thing up there. There's real people with real lives uh, who live there and know how to balance out the... Uh, opportunity that resource development provides with the very important, critical surface resources that, you know, entire cultures and civilizations have, have been dependent upon for thousands of years. And so- His argument was it's naive to think that this is a part of the U.S. that you put off limits and you think it's gorgeous, but you don't actually drill and mine there. That's part of what it's there for. And in fact, that is the economic lifeblood of Alaska. And, you know, certainly when you when you talk to younger folks, they are aware of how things have changed. And there are all these ways in which resource development and particularly oil development has allowed them to have a level of self-determination. And so it's hard to say no to that. But at the same time, particularly some of these young people are looking a few decades ahead and wondering what sort of life can they have going forward. They're in fear of their future. They're in fear of their losing all their hunting grounds. You know, they take pride in learning and being able to go out there and, you know, even just to catch their first caribou, catch their fish. And, you know, they they have a lot of pride in that and honor and our subsistence way of life. So what is the current status of oil drilling in this town? So there's significant oil development just a matter of miles away by ConocoPhillips. We're also at a moment where the Trump administration is pushing to expand oil development on the federal land that abuts Nooksit. And so, for example, in December, the Interior Department is going to auction off nearly 4 million acres of land for oil and gas drilling. Put it in perspective, that's roughly double the amount of land that's been auctioned off in the entire previous decade. So I can imagine that Martha Ita is probably going to continue to fight this, but it seems like that's a done deal. Yeah. At the end of the day, she is left wondering what impact will she have on the juggernaut that is oil development on Alaska's North Slope. Juliet Alprin is a national affairs correspondent for The Post. 
Her story is the latest in the Post's 2C series on climate change. You can find a link to the project at postreports.com. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. And now, one more thing about a new citizenship law in India. Last week, India passed a law that makes religion a criterion for nationality for the first time. It creates a fast track towards citizenship for migrants who entered India illegally, provided they are adherents of one of six religions, including Hinduism, Buddhism, and Christianity. However, it pointedly excludes Islam. My name is Joanna Slater, and I'm the India Bureau Chief of The Washington Post. Opponents say the law is discriminatory and violates India's constitution. And in response to the passage of the legislation, protests have erupted across the country, including in the nation's capital, New Delhi. The protests represent the most significant show of opposition to the government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi since he took power in 2014. And they come just months after he won a stunning re-election victory back in May. Wrong allegations. I am proud to be a German. I am proud to be an Indian. I'm proud to be a Muslim. And I'm proud to be a protester. On Sunday night, a protest march not too far from here turned violent, and police officers stormed a nearby university campus where they hit unarmed students and fired tear gas shells into a library. Subway stations not too far from here were closed, and several buses and other vehicles were set on fire. Protests have broken out in many cities across the country, but only in a couple of cases have they paralyzed normal life. Some of the biggest protests have taken place in India's northeastern states, which is a region that borders Bangladesh, Myanmar, and China. So the opposition to the law in the Northeast is rooted in somewhat different concerns. In that region, there are longstanding concerns around migrants entering the region, primarily via a porous border uh, with Bangladesh. So their residents worry that the new citizenship law will make it easier for migrants to become citizens, which in turn will mean demographic and linguistic change uh, in India's Northeast. If you go and look at the border, it it doesn't look like the international border between two countries. We need some kind of assurance. We are scared. The government has betrayed us. So unless and, and until the government does something about it, we will keep on protesting. India is a diverse, multi-religious democracy that is also home to the second largest community of Muslims in the world, even though it has a Hindu majority. It is also officially a secular country, according to its constitution. So the new law, by naming religion in citizenship law, is a move away from that secular ethos by Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Modi leads a Hindu nationalist party, the Bharatiya Janata Party, 
And the fear is that some of these policies could effectively turn India's Muslims into second-class citizens. Joanna Slater is the India Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode of Post Reports, we will have complete coverage of the vote in the House of Representatives to impeach the president. You can look out for that to drop in the evening shortly after the votes are taken. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Contributions to Post Helping Hand go directly to services run by beneficiaries Bright Beginnings and Street Village and So Others Might Eat that provide shelter, food, education, and other services to those less fortunate in the Washington, D.C. region. Learn more at posthelpinghand.com.